0: All right, let's look at our uh, reading now. This is, again, from Genesis 6, 7, and 8. We're talking tonight about the flood. Uh, Tim uh, introduced us to the person of Noah and and all the things there. I've heard that he stirred up a few things last week. Are you guys stirred up a few things? We'll we'll see if we can uh, follow up some more about those. But let me read to you. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons wives with you, and of everything every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be made or shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, "'Go into the ark, you and all your household, "'for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation.'" Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah, and after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and animals. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that, you may, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, Just actually a summary of the story of Noah and the Great Flood. Uh, You can find it all there in chapters 6 through 8 of your Bible. So if you have a Bible, it would be good to open it because I might by chance refer, and you may want to refer to some of the verses we didn't uh, read tonight. Uh, Let's start with this. Uh, Based on what we just read, how strange is it that we decorate children's rooms with this story? If you think about it, you know, it's... it's, uh, it's often thought as one of the cuter stories of the Bible, and probably it's because of the it's easy to tell to kids, and there's animals in it, right? But other than that, if you really pay attention to the story, it's not a very kid-friendly story. Uh, it's a story of very radical judgment and utter destruction. Um, the way God puts it is, I'm going to wipe out everything on the face of the earth. Uh, and the word used for wipe out is literally like taking a rag and scrubbing out the bottom of a dish until it's completely clean. God scrubs the earth uh, because of wickedness. That, and that you know doesn't seem to be a, a very a nursery friendly story, uh, but nevertheless, it's there. Uh, another reason why we might put it on kids rooms, and this is what we want to get to tonight especially, is the story, even though it's about judgment, is also about salvation, isn't it? Um, right in the middle of all the judgment where God's wiping the earth clean, he provides a way of escape in the ark. And he takes, yeah, just eight people, but still eight people to survive in that ark. And, yeah, not every animal, but two, are male and female, of all the animals are put in the ark to save the world through one man. And so if you look at your bulletin, I want to talk through three things that are here in the story. And uh, we'll have some interaction along the way. Uh, first, I want to talk about judgment. We've got we to gotta talk about that because that is the not-so-kid-friendly but yet important part of the story. Uh, secondly, I want to talk to you about the ark and what, how salvation works. And then lastly, I want to talk about the new start after the flood and how the flood really is a new creation, just like our salvation is a new creation of our lives. Okay, So first of all, let's talk about judgment. Everybody excited to talk about judgment? <laughs> uh, I think Tim got into this a little bit last week, if I'm not mistaken. You know, remember he, he took you through the first uh, verses of chapter 6, uh, where it had said God regretted that he made man on the earth. Uh, what do y'all think about that? Let's hear a few of your thoughts from last week. Well, what does it mean that God regretted that he made man on the earth, and why is it important for us to know that? Hmm. It does sound like he changes his mind, and definitely from our, from Noah's perspective, he did, or at least from the perspective of the people, he did. Um, not true that he did in reality, because God is changeless, completely changeless. But um, a lot of times, from our perspective, it, it appears that God is changing his mind. Why? Because he's heading in one direction and promising one thing, and then because of things that happen, he's switching to another track. Um but it is always true that God knows all those things ahead of time and that none of them surprise God even though they do catch us by surprise. What else? Clint. It is. Yeah. how bad must the situation be? Yeah. Yes the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. You really can't say it any stronger than that. Anything else? All right. Tim said y'all are a lot more lively last week on this topic. Is that right? <laughs> um, I, and I know, okay, we gotta, we got to say... Absolutely. Uh, it seems like a contradiction to us that the Bible says God changes his mind, and then the Bible turns around and says God never changes his mind. But again, you've got to think about it, our perspective versus God's perspective. Uh, there's actually another phrase in tonight's reading that's the same way, where it says God remembered Noah when he was in the ark. Same deal. God never forgets, but yet the Bible also says he remembers things, which remember only makes sense if you forget, usually. Uh, but if, So you've got to always take what the Bible says about God and you've got to recognize He's speaking to us in our terms about Himself because that is, in fact, the only way God can speak about Himself to us is in our terms or in terms that we could understand. The fancy word for that in the Bible is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, that, that's an expression that is like a—it's describing God as if He were a human being. And you shouldn't take that as meaning God is like a human being, but you should take it as God is doing certain things that to us seem very much like this thing that human beings do. And so when the world got so corrupt that it grieved God to the uttermost, he did what it, look, what it looked like he was doing was regretting something that he had done before. What he was actually doing was continuing to carry out his purpose of judging sin, which he's always said he was going to do, And saving people in the midst of judgment, which he has always said he was going to do. And so the the, the flood is all about judgment, being brought upon the world, judgment. Uh, Even though it's also going to be about salvation, the ultimate thing that the flood is about is judgment. Because it was only eight people that survived it. All the rest got completely uh, wiped away. If you look there in verse uh, 11 of chapter 6, it's printed in the bulletin. Uh, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh, in other words, all humans, had corrupted their way on the earth. Um, Remember when when God made humanity, remember what he did? He said, you're made in my image, and you're being given dominion over the creatures, the earth. And so, as man goes, the earth goes. That's why what human beings do is such an important thing to God. And so, when man was corrupt, it corrupted the earth. When man does what's right, you know, it leads the earth back into God's good graces, right? And you know, vice versa. Um, it says, in fact, when Israel got put in the land of promise and were exiled out, one of the things the prophet said is. Uh, the earth itself is vomiting you out of the land because you have corrupted your ways and led the earth astray. It's an interesting way to put it, but it just shows you just how important to God what humanity does is. And so it says here that the earth was corrupt because people had corrupted their way on the earth. Now contrast that with what it says there in verses 9 and 10 about Noah. Uh, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And had three sons. So you got, on the one hand, corruption and violence, and they weren't walking with God. It was just God saw them, but they weren't walking with Him. It's like God saw them from a distance, if you will. But here is Noah, who is righteous and blameless because he's walking with God. God doesn't just see Him from a distance, He sees Him right up close and personal and intimate. And Noah also sees God right up personal, close, and intimate. And so when you're thinking about judgment, you always got to think about those two two possibilities. All human beings can either be far from God or near to God. They can either be walking with God or walking away from God. And you'll be able to tell which one it is based on the lifestyle. It'll either be corrupt and violent or it'll be blameless and righteous. Uh, It's very important to remember, though, if you look back at chapter 6, verse 8... That way before the Bible ever says, or or at least right before the Bible says that Noah was righteous, it says Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so, you know, the idea that grace came before Noah's obedience is right there, you know. To find favor is to stumble upon grace. Like, it's the same word as the word eureka. To find is eureka. Wow. Uh, Noah's just walking along, and boom, grace hits him. And God comes and is gracious to him. And because God's gracious to him, his life changes. He starts walking with God, and and instead of being violent and corrupt, he becomes righteous and blameless. God's judgment is based on that dividing line between human beings. That's how God sorts people out uh, as to whether they're going to be washed away in the flood or whether they're not going to be washed away in the flood. Uh, This is important, and the reason why I'm saying all this is because I think everybody, really at the heart of things, does understand judgments needed in the world. I think. But I think where we get really confused and where we start to argue with, with each other in the world is, okay, what is the basis of that judgment? Who is the right person or persons to bring the judgment? When should it be brought? How should it be brought? All those kinds of things we start to debate. But the fact that there needs to be judgment is hardly ever something people... Completely dismiss. Does that make sense? Uh, Here's the test of that. Um, You might not feel it if someone steals something from someone else, but when someone steals something from you, you especially believe there ought to be judgment in the world, right? If someone hurts you or one of your children, then you want the police and the court and whoever and anybody who can come in and bring justice, you want it. Well, this is saying God is committed to not just temporary justice. He's committed to justice forever. He's committed to the kind of justice that would actually clean the world of sin, which is the idea behind that being wiped out phrase. God is going to take his rag and wipe the world down so that all the dirt that's kind of seeped into the surface of the world gets completely cleansed out. No judge can do that. No human judge can do that, but God can do that. You know, And so here's what, as Christians, you know, here's something that we need to learn how to be more, learn how to rest in more, okay? I don't think we are always good at resting in this. The world knows there needs to be judgment. We know who the judge is, and we know on what basis he will judge, and we know when he'll judge ultimately. And yet sometimes we're ashamed to talk about that. Or to even fully believe it, we're maybe a little bit gun shy of believing it. Why do you think that is? Why are we uncomfortable with the idea of God as the judge of all the earth? Why? Scary. scary, yeah, because it's got it's got fear there. Yeah, it's scary. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be judged, right? Or we wanna be the judge, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yep. A standard in my hands feels a little bit more doable because I tend to do pretty well by my own standard. You might not, but I, I do fine with my standard, right? But when you're talking about God's standard, which the words here righteous, blameless, that's his standard. Wow. That's uncomfortable. What else? It is. Yep. Clint, you're about to say something, I think. I think um I just think I see a lot of in the confusion and leaning towards mercy. Yeah. Because they they don't want to kind of like can say, you know they don't want to give up standards for what is to be judged. And so yeah. just kinda of lower those standards, you just have a really we call it a small view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mhm. That's good. Yeah. So some yeah, even sometimes our confidence in the mercy of God can drown out our confidence in the judgment of God. But reality is and and the flood story is the perfect place to look at that. Mercy doesn't drown out judgment and judgment doesn't drown out mercy. God has the volume turned all the way up on both and he never turns the volume down on either because he's 100% just all the time. And he's 100% merciful all the time, right? Which is why we can't look for ultimate justice from any other source but God. Uh, the, the justice that we pursue in this world, which is important to pursue, is only proximate. It's only, you know, it, we're trying to, to, to line up as best we can with the justice of God. But it's always going to fall short in some way, shape, or form. The ultimate justice can only come from him because of, of his character as 100% just and 100% righteous. In fact, it's very clear here the standard. Uh, even you can see it even in those two words, righteous and corrupt. I mean, sorry, righteous and blameless. What do both of those two words imply? Perfect. What else? God. Hey, you have to have God. I mean, you, you know, you really can't define either word, truly. I mean, try, try to do it. Try to define the word righteous without any reference or belief in God. I'm aware that a lot of people try to do that, but try to do it and see if it works. Because I'd say it doesn't really work that well. Uh, it's especially true the word blameless. What in the world does that mean? Like, Maybe you could say, well, that means it's blameless in the eyes of people, but is that always a good standard? You know, haven't people approved of some pretty wild things in history and some pretty corrupt people in history? You know, Hitler got elected by popular election. Did he not? Uh, And so blamelessness and righteousness had to have some greater standard than human beings. And so how can you define those without putting God in the picture? Uh, I I would say this. If you don't believe in the final judgment of God, you don't believe in meaning to life. Uh, You don't believe in any sense of justice, really. Justice is only a social invention that can change from one generation to the next to the next to the next, which I think is kind of disastrous. Clint? Oh, I I think other thing that's been helpful for me is to think about who you're violating. Yeah. And since he's eternal, infinite, mm-hmm. there's nothing finite that can pay a price for an infinite violation right. or a violation against someone who isn't. Yeah. That, that stretches out. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And and even the word there, uh verse 13, you, I have determined... To make an end of all flesh. I mean, that's getting to a little bit what you're talking about there. The God whom we have violated is a God who determines and who you can't stop once he's determined something. Uh, So there was no way for Noah to step in and say, oh, God, don't send a flood. God had determined to send the flood. And in the same way, we can't pray, oh, God, don't don't come back and judge the world. Don't do that, you know, because God has determined to do that. Now, what we can pray for is fill the ark, O Lord. Bring more people into the ark. Bring me and my family into the ark, which is what we're going to talk about next. Uh, before we do that, though, I, I want to remind you that this is not just an Old Testament thing. I know that many of you know this, but I, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the Old Testament and the New Testament are in perfect harmony on everything, actually, but on this point, too. Uh, Jesus spoke about the final judgment. In fact, he didn't lessen it. He made it sharper in some ways because he said it personally. I am the judge, and one day you're going to see me come back in the glory of my Father and the angels, and I'm going to sit on the throne, and I'm going to separate people from one another like sheep are separated from goats. I mean, that's that's an even sharper, more personal way to talk about God's final judgment. I'm going to divide people out. Sheep on one side, goats on the other. The sheep are those who found favor with God, walk with God, are righteous and blameless. The goats, corrupt, full of violence, taking the world down with them, following the course of the people uh, that were there in the days of Noah. In fact, Jesus said in that last day, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. Everybody's going to be marrying, being given in marriage, having children, building lives. Everybody's not going to know what's about to hit them. And then I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and everybody's going to have to give an account to me. So Jesus did not soften judgment. He made it sharper and more personal and actually a little bit more scary because he added this element of I am the thief that's coming in the night. Um, You're like, wow, you know. And uh, you say, well, that's not the Jesus I like. You know, someone might say that. Well, you know, there's only one Jesus. And so either the Bible the re- is the guide to him or it's not. And if the Bible's not the guide to the real Jesus, what is the guide to the real Jesus? Where is he? How can he be found and how can he be known? As far as I know, the Bible is the only place that you find out about Jesus in all the world. Um, with like two exceptions in Josephus. (laughs) Uh, Then it gives you very little about Jesus in that book. But outside of that, you're either riding with the Bible or you're not when it comes to Jesus. And the Bible presents a Jesus not just meek and mild, but a Jesus who will come with a sword coming out of his mouth to slay his enemies and to separate people one from another. Um, Scary, but very important to know uh, also, notice, God, who does God tell about the judgment? There in verses 11, 12, 13, chapter 6. Does God just say it to himself? He said it to Noah. It to Noah. God's always done this. Okay, God is a, is a judge, and yes, a scary judge, but God has never been a silent judge. Uh, every time, he has always given human beings advance warning of his judgment. He's always told us what basis his judgment will be rendered on, and he's always told us how we can prepare for it. Always. Throughout history. And, um, and so that's why, you know, the Scripture also says we're without excuse if we come to the judgment unprepared. Just like Noah would have been without excuse. And we have indication because you say, well, God only told Noah. He didn't tell everybody else. Well, the New Testament calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. He uses that word about Noah. He's a preacher of righteousness. Noah went out and told people what was going down, as we should as well. All right, so that's judgment. Let's look now at the ark, which is uh, the revelation of God's, how he saves us in the middle of judgment. Judgment. Uh, This starts in verse 14 of chapter 6, where God turns to Noah and he says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. And he gives to Noah all these specifications for the ark, how big it's to be, how it's to be designed. uh, Which, by the way, interesting fact, other uh, ancient cultures have stories about floods. And they also have stories about how the gods or God gave to people the instructions for the boat. But in those stories, those boats won't float. Like literally, the dimensions and the materials they're made out of are totally impossible that they would ever float on water. They're mythical. Uh, This boat, actually, you could build it and it would float. You know, this is just one more indication that we're not talking here of this is not just a Hebrew myth that at some later point in time people are like, wow, I'm going to start believing that even though it was mythical. Uh, This story was meant to be read as this actually happened. Uh, This is a boat that will float you, (laughs) Uh, which is why God gave it to Noah and to his family uh, in order to gather not just them but all the animals in. Now, what is emphasized there all the way down to verse 24 in tonight's reading is how every step of the way Noah did exactly what God told him to do. Uh, Look through your Bible, starting in verse 14, and see if you can count how many times does it say Noah did all that God commanded him to do. Um, If you'll look all the way down to verse 22 and then go into chapter 7 as well, how many times does it say it? You got verse 22, that's one. You got verse five of chapter seven. That's two. Nine in chapter seven. That's three. You could, argue, you could argue verse seven as well. That he went in. Yep, verse seven. He went in. Yep, four. Sixteen. 16. Uh, you could also say thirteen. They went in and entered the ark. Fifteen. They entered. Sixteen. They went in as God commanded. So at least. A handful or more times, just almost like a repetition all throughout the story, like in the creation story where it said it was so, and it was good, and it was so, and it was good. This story is like that. God said do this, and Noah did it. God said do that, Noah did it. God said do the other, Noah did the other. Uh, Why is it saying that? Because uh, it's emphasizing the way God will save people from judgment. God has always saved his people from judgment through the obedience of one man. Think about it. Can you think of other examples? Moses. Moses. Yep. Joseph. Obviously, Noah. Other examples? I call it like very obedience, but Jonah. Jonah. Yeah, exactly. Jonah. It was unwilling, but he did it, and it worked. Josiah. Josiah. David. David. I mean, David and Goliath, right? What's that? Pick a judge, any judge, even the bad ones, even Samson, you know, uh, all of them. Jesus, yes, that's right. The trump card has been laid down, yes. And that's exactly what, obviously that's where I'm driving, right? Uh, There's a pattern in the Bible where God saves all the people through the obedience of one willing person. And it, this is kind of one of the first places where it starts. Um, you don't get that in this, any of the other stories before this. Noah's is that first one that comes on the scene, and he obeys. No one else does, and yet other people get saved because Noah obeyed. In fact, everybody tonight is in this room because Noah obeyed God. Uh, everybody that is alive is alive because Noah obeyed God. Right? The animals are alive because Noah obeyed God. Isn't that remarkable? And this pattern, of course, wasn't just, you know, it's not just because God, you know, randomly chose the pattern. He's working this way because God wants us when Jesus comes to be ready to receive the message. Because all those other examples have one major difference with Jesus. whether you're talking about Noah, David, Moses, Josiah. what's the main difference between all that long line of people and Jesus? Sin? Uh-huh. Sorry, I got something in my throat. Jesus is God. What else?? <clears throat> Yeah, they were righteous by grace, right? Total gift of God, Jesus was actually righteous. Uh, when it says Noah was blameless and righteous, it was only after he found grace with God that he was. Jesus was righteous and blameless from the get-go, from the from conception, you see. Um, somebody else? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was all limited. Yeah, Noah, the most limited, eight persons. Now, of course, we mean out of those eight came everybody. So you could say Noah saved the whole world in a way, but, um, but in that day, at least, he saved eight. But Jesus, of course, saved a multitude that no man can number that will be gathered into the kingdom of heaven. But it all came down to one person's willing obedience. All have sinned and gone astray, But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. Um, He died on the cross for our sins so that he might bring us back to God. The, The righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us back to God so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became a curse for us so that we could receive God's blessing. Uh, Noah is, is really a Christ figure, uh, one, the first of many, many Christ figures that you find throughout the Bible that are just sort of re-engaging people in hope that God really is going to do what he said he was going to do in Genesis 3.15. I will send a, um, a, the offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the snake, and people will be freed from the tyranny of the snake and the tyranny of sin. Isn't that cool? Uh, In our uh, testimony of grace tonight, if you'll look at your bulletin, that that verse from uh, Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter says exactly what we're saying here. Just take a look. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not because of the removal of dirt from the body. So it's not the outward baptism that saves you. But baptism saves you because in the baptism there is an opportunity for an appeal to God for a new conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Do you see? In other words, what's Peter saying? Jesus is our ark. And the way that you enter the ark is through belief. And what confirms belief in our hearts is what baptism signifies. Baptism. You see that? That's why he says baptism saves you. He uses very strong language there because when you look at baptism, you shouldn't just see baptism, you should see Jesus. That's where our faith is. Our faith is not in some human man who dips some water over top of someone's head, although that's important because it's God commanded us to do it. That's not the action that saves anyone, whether infant or otherwise. It's the resurrection of Jesus, the obedience of the one man that saves all who come to him. When you look at baptism, you see that clear so that you can embrace it and receive it. Uh, and so today, if we're going to do you know, like Noah did, which we're supposed to, you know, we find grace when we hear the gospel, and we're supposed to then walk with God. How do you do that? How do you enter into the ark? Peter tells you. You, you appeal to God for a good conscience through faith and baptism, and you set your eyes completely on him for salvation rather than on yourself. In so doing, we are going to be saved. When Jesus comes back again and he separates people like sheep from the goats, we have his guarantee that by believing in him, we'll be among the sheep rather than the goats. In fact, that's the only guarantee we can have. Um, You know, the famous, uh, I think it was evangelism explosion that did the question, if you died today, is that evangelism explosion? If you died today and appeared before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? That's a great question. And the and according to this story, the only answer that's the right answer is the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ, the obedience of one man. If you start listing out your obediences, you've already started down the wrong path, right? <laughs> I did this, I did that, I felt this way, I got goosebumps in church one time when I was 10. You know, you start, you know, my grandmother had a Bible You know, you start going into all that stuff, you've already kind of lost your way. But if you're able to say, one man, in Christ alone, as we sang a moment ago, uh, that is the answer uh, that will bring us into the ark safely before the Lord. And, in fact, we see uh, in the story when they went into the ark and the waters came down, uh, it says, God shut them in, verse uh, 16 of chapter 7. Did you see that? The Lord shut them in. He sealed over the boat and made sure they would be protected. And uh, that's so true of us, too, right? When we believe in Jesus, God shuts us in. He seals us forever. Uh, Once you become a Christian, you're a Christian for life. You're a Christian forever. That is a true heart Christian. Um, Doesn't mean that people don't say they're Christians and then all of a sudden not become Christians. That does happen with quite regularity. But you can't be a real heart Christian and then unseat yourself from the ark. (laughs) You are shut in until the day of judgment. And so, you know, we've been given this message, y'all, not just of judgment to share with people, which is admittedly a hard thing to share, but we've been given a message of both judgment and a way of escape, which is much bigger and more spacious than the ark. You know, the ark could accommodate... A very limited number of people. The, the death of Jesus Christ, how many people can that accommodate? It could, it could accommodate anyone. Um, you know, the worst of sinners? Yeah. The most self-righteous of people? Sure. If you repent and believe, it can accommodate you. And so, um, you know, when Jesus went forward, you know, and, and taught such sharp things about judgment, but he was also someone who welcomed sinners. Um, and and, and that, that right there has always been one of my favorite things about Jesus. One of my favorite things. is here you have a guy who never stops talking about hell, and yet sinners always want to be around him. And I don't get that because when I start talking about hell, people start to disappear, you know? Why is it that Jesus has the opposite effect? Well, because he's got this perfect, I mean, he's got the perfect balance that only God could have. Of judgment turned all the way up and mercy turned all the way up. Plenty of room in this ark, Jesus said, for you. Um, Some of the people that he saved is just remarkable. You know, a a tax collector. You know, women of ill repute. Um, He saved... uh, well, Paul, a religious basket case, <laughs> and terrorists, really. Uh, he saved him. Wow. This ark can accommodate us. Isn't that good? But it's only because of one man's obedience. And so um, the way Christianity works is you're saved by Christ's obedience, and then your obedience can only be an outflow of his obedience and his work in your heart. It's not the other way around. It's not we obey and then Christ comes to us because we've obeyed sufficiently. We find favor and then we walk with God and become more righteous and blameless. Kind of like we were saying this morning about the calling that you then learn how to become worthy of. Right? You receive the calling when you're not worthy of it. But the rest of your life is about becoming more and more, like walking more and more worthy of the calling that He's given. Can't get it out of order. All right, the third thing, which we don't have as much time for, but I want to show you real quick. This is really important. Uh, God remembers Noah, chapter 8, verse 1, and that's not because God forgot him, but it's because God was beginning to move on something he had already promised he was going to do. Uh, When the Bible talks about God remembering, that's what it means. It means God begins to act on his covenant promise from long ago. He'd already promised it. Now he's starting to go into action. And he brings them out of the ark. But not only that, he brings all the animals out of the ark. And he calls them to go into the world and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Uh, How does that sound familiar to you? Chapter 8, verse 17. Go into the world and be fruitful and multiply. What does that come from? Hey, kids. Go sit down, bud. We're finishing up. Go sit down. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, the very first page of the Bible. That's where it comes from. Um, And so what's happening with Noah is he picked his family and all these, you know, sample of all the animals in order to restart the creation. So a new creation is now coming. Which, again, is a great example, a great picture of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came not only to forgive you of your sins, but to bring a new creation into your life and into the world. Whole new creation. Uh, In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is or she is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And the calling that we have, just like it was for Noah and his family, is to go out and spread the, the news and the uh, dominion of God once again into the world the way we were originally meant to do it. Noah is restored back to Adam's calling. He's like a second Adam. And so is Christ. And so are we in him called to do the same.